Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a keynote presentation from the 2019 Drug Delivery West Conference on the topic of MRI-guided focused ultrasound and the delivery of therapeutics to the brain. This session is led by Dr. Isabel Aubert, professor at the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology at the University of Toronto. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Anne. Thanks, the organizer, for inviting me. My pleasure to be here. So when I first set out to um, do this research, I'm trained as a neurobiologist, and I studied brain regeneration. And I thought that was hard. And after the first talk this morning, maybe drug delivery is even harder. So on that note, let's get started. So really, uh, I will give a brief introduction just on Alzheimer's disease, just to let you know that uh, what are the challenges right now? And as you can see from the preclinical, and we heard about the mouse model, and there's many other different challenges, but from preclinical to what is currently used for Alzheimer's disease, the list is daunting on how many drugs have failed to date. Most of them have focused on a beta immunotherapy. Uh, I will talk a little bit about neurotrophin as well, as we want to go not only for a beta, but for tau pathology and also for uh, neurotrophins. So what is the issue? Well, there are many, as you can imagine. Is it the drug, the target? Is it druggable? Is it the patient population? Did we start too late? The study design? There's huge complexity into this clinical trial, but today I will focus on the delivery aspect. So in the presentation, I will give you a brief introduction about MRI-guided focused ultrasound and blood-brain barrier permeability. And here, I'm sure, as you are drug delivery people, you say, is it permeability? Is it the opening? Is it what is the right word? I welcome your feedback on this. And then how can we deliver small molecules? So I will go from small to larger, small molecules, antibody, and gene vectors to make a difference into our therapeutics. Then I will tell you a little bit about the effect of focused ultrasound by itself on the brain and what is now in clinical trial. So first, focused ultrasound is really a combination of different parameters. And you have to look at the frequency of the ultrasound and also the acoustic power. So that is what we call like the intensity that we deliver. All this together for blood-brain barrier opening or permeability, we're into the megahertz range of frequency. And we have to keep the pressure really low so that we do not damage the brain. So in terms of the, what you've probably heard the most in terms of ultrasound use is the high intensity. High intensity is a thermal ablation. You are destroying tissue, you are generating heat. It is really like you would use a surgical tool to remove a tumor. You can also use high intensity focused ultrasound to do a surgery without a scalpel and heat up that tumor and destroy it. I am not talking about that. So remove that from your brain completely. This is not what I'm talking about. I want to discuss today uh, blood-brain barrier permeability, which is a low intensity. There is no heat being generated. All of this is monitored, and we do not want to cause any damage to the brain. So it's really with the invention of, uh, or the genius of Dr. Clairvo Hinnanen, who is also at Sunnybrook, that he thought, how can we generate blood-brain barrier permeability without damaging the brain? And it's really with the use of microbubbles. Well, as a neuroscientist, I said, what? What are you injecting in the brain? Microbubbles? Like, this was to me like, uh, not a good term to use. These are phospholipid microsphere. Um, and they can really be used to capture the acoustic ener energy and help the blood-brain barrier permeability to happen. So the energy that is delivered with the ultrasound can be 100 to 1,000 times less 
when we put these microbubbles into the bloodstream compared to what we use for thermal ablation. So the easiest way for us to demonstrate this is with a, a really an animation. And so we have the microbubbles here in the blood that are circulating, and your therapeutic are these little purple dots, and you want the therapeutics to go into the brain parenchyma. So what can happen is like with the ultrasound, so the ultrasound is put transcranially, there's no opening of the skull, nothing, you just shave the brain, put the ultrasound transducer on the cranium, and then the ultrasound wave are going through the brain, and only where those macro bubbles are circulating that they will start to oscillate and vibrate and distend the tight junction for a few hours. So the permeability of the blood-brain barrier lasts for about six to 12 hours, and I can tell you that it closes relatively fast because the best time to deliver the therapeutic in the bloodstream is at the same time as we apply the ultrasound. For some therapeutic, if we wait too long, even half an hour to an hour, we don't have maximal delivery of the therapeutic. So it has to happen quite rapidly. So what we've done so far with focus ultrasound delivery of therapeutics, and I, I asked my illustrator to put this to scale to give you an idea of what we're talking about, but if you want to de deliver a macromolecule like an antibody, it's a nanometer size, it's relatively small, you do not need a large opening of the tight junction of the permeability of the blood-brain barrier. Same thing for a viral vector, if we're talking about adeno-associated virus or AEV, there's also a nanometer scale. We've done some cell delivery, and this is a very optimistic drawing. I do not believe it will happen this way. I do think that your red blood cell will also go in, like you would have what we would consider as a macrohemorrhage uh, locally if you go into the cell delivery strategy. But we've done that as well. And it's surprising how some cells will actually cross the blood-brain barrier uh, much easier than others. So some stem cell, for example, we were able to deliver them to the brain and with the intracarotid uh, injection in a rat, and then able to deliver them with ultrasound as well. So I'm not going to talk about cell delivery today, but I will talk about um, all the way to uh, gene therapy here. So what about the small mo molecule? So the, the one I want to discuss is a track a agonist for NGF receptor activation or nerve growth factor. So in Alzheimer's disease, not only there's pathology, and the one that we focus the most on is amyloid beta and tau, but these are the ones we can see right now and we can target. I am, my gut feeling tells me there'll be more to the story than only these two. Um, and what happened is a massive degeneration in the Alzheimer brain. You can see here is the hippocampus compared to a healthy brain. The hippocampus is a site of memory formation. This is also where adult neurogenesis happened or the birth of new neurons and those are important for your memory function as well. So in the basal forebrain, there's a decrease of all the neurotrophin component, including track A and P75 and NGF, and that leads in the hippocampus as well to this decrease. But if you notice, P75, which is a, another receptor for NGF with track A, remains stable, and that's an issue because it's really the combination of track A and P75 that has a full action uh, onto the survival of the cell and their plasticity. But if you activate P75 alone, you can lead the cells to, to die. It, it can be pro-apoptotic, whereas track A is much more regenerative. So our strategy was really to find a small molecule that will activate track A only. And all the therapeutics I'm going to tell you about, these are the therapeutics that you guys and your collaborators and your colleagues will have figured out 
all the other issues. So imagine these therapeutics to be good in the periphery, they get a little bit into the brain, but not enough. So this is where focused ultrasound would have like his best impact on this. It's really to be able to um, get a therapeutic that is already good and crossing the blood-brain barrier a little bit, but would it be much better if it crossed the brain to a greater extent? So that's what I want you to imagine as a therapeutic here. And this is true true for uh, D3. It was designed as a small molecule. It is it cross yeah actually it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier at all. So this one did not work. Did it all the work thinking it will cross the blood-brain barrier, but it doesn't. So Dr. Sarah Guvi at McGill asked me. Um, could you help me here? Could you make this cross the blood-brain barrier? So that's how we started with the ultrasound. And Christina Xima is my grad student working on this. The mouse model we're using is the TG-CERN-D8 mouse model of amyloidosis, uh, really a rapid progression of amyloid pathology. And this is really a model that we can test for amyloid pathology, but also for other features, as you can see here, related to, um, to the deficit that are found in Alzheimer's disease. Christy characterized these mice, and they have deficit in track A, they have deficit in NGF. I'm not going to show you the data today, but these also have recapitulation of the neurotrophin components that we want to study. So it looks exactly like that. The mice are so beautiful uh, under the MRI. So this is a seven Tesla MRI. The mouse is placed on its back, and what we do, we all always carefully monitor them as well. Um, we take a first MR images, to make sure that we have our targeting, and then you can decide where we want to target. So then the targeting is coupled with the focus ultrasound transducer, and there's a hydrophone here that actually listens to the acoustic energy. When the ultrasound hit the microbubbles, they start to oscillate and vibrate, and the hydrophone can measure this energy. When, with the feedback controller, then we can decide how much pressure do we give, and then the pressure drop when we reach the pressure that we're interested in, and we do it at a very low um, intensity. So we inject, the microbubbles are injected in the bloodstream, as well as the contrast agent for MRI, and any therapeutic that we want to go in. And once the therapeutic goes in, along with the contrast agent for MRI, we can see live where the blood-brain barrier was open with the entry of gadolinium, which enhanced the contrast. So this would be like a very large opening where we do multiple focal spots on one side of the brain. What I'm going to talk about is really how to target the basal forebrain. So the basal forebrain is a really deep structure, and so far in clinical trial for Alzheimer's disease, the only way that that was achieved was with intracranial injection. So you can Im imagine the invasiveness of an intracranial injection all the way deep into the ventral part of the brain. So we target the basal forebrain with the medial septal nucleus, nucleus and the nucleus basalis of Minert, and it looks after targeting with the ultrasound, you can see these focal spots. We successfully target these area. So in the X, Y axis, we have a really good resolution with the ultrasound, but you can see in the Z axis, it's really in a mouse. It will go throughout the whole length of the mouse of the brain. In a human, you can have better resolution, obviously, because it's much bigger brain. And then we look, so that's only like a few hours after the ultrasound was um, perform. We wanted to see if we have proper targeting, so we look for the entry of Evans Blue. We inject Evans Blue in the tail vein, and we can see that Evans Blue enter the basal forebrain in the three spot that we are have targeted. 
Then when we deliver the small molecule D3 with HPLC, we can measure how much D3 was entered into the brain. So we dissected these brain regions. So that's 90 minutes after the ultrasound. And you can see both in transgenic mouse, which are blue, and non-transgenic mouse in red. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when there's no ultrasound, nothing is getting into the brain, but with the ultrasound, we can detect D3 in the brain in a significant amount. The, the level of D3 was the same in the blood uh, compartment so that we can make sure that we had actually injected D3 in the tail vein and only when the ultrasound was given that it entered uh, the brain. So the level of enhancement, that's a gadolinium that I've showed you. So the more enhancement that you have, the more drug you can get in. So it's just we found that there was a correlation, and it's been shown before with other drugs, that you have a correlation between the relative enhancement and the amount of drug that is delivered. So we can achieve targeted delivery uh, with the ultrasound, and this is really important for a drug also that you would want to target to specific areas of the brain. And this would be important for disease. If you think of depression, some part of the brain, if they receive the same drug, the effect would actually be canceled. So there are situations where you want to have a broad distribution of the drug, where then it's better that it completely cross the blood-brain barrier and you don't need the ultrasound. Or if you want to reduce the dose that you give systemically, then the ultrasound can be good for multiple spot, spot and global delivery or local, localized delivery like in this one. So the important thing also is that we do engage the receptor that we're interested in. Sure, I can show you there's enough amount of therapeutics into the brain, but does it actually lead to functional consequences? So if you look, I won't go through all these Western blood, but my grad student worked really hard on them, so I thought I need to show it. I'll appreciate if you don't take picture, please, because this data is not published yet, and I'm just sharing it with you. Um, and then some slide will be shared at the end. Thank you. So if you look at the phosphorylation of track A, for example, because this is the receptor that is targeted with D3, so you want to make sure that the track A phosphorylation is happening. And um, so that's this band here. And we've done the entire signaling cascade for both track A and P75, but I will show you only the downstream effect of um, phosphocreb and track A. So this is what it looks like with, um, for the phosphorylation of track A. So here we can see that only when you give the ultrasound, both in the basal forebrain region, the medial septonucleus and the nucleus basal of Minert, you can see that with ultrasound you have a massive um, activation of phosphorylation of track A, both in the transgenic and in the non-transgenic. And again, remember that this is the only case where D3 was entering the brain. So it engaged its receptor, and it also engaged uh, phosphocreb into those brain regions. So that was very encouraging to us that not only we have a significant amount of drug entering the brain, but that we also engage the receptor. So now what about the antibodies? So there's a fortune that has been spent into designing antibodies um, against amyloid beta and tau and other agents that would help for Alzheimer's disease, and those so far, unfortunately, have failed. So our thoughts there was, uh, can we help and rescue some of these antibodies and make them work better if they were to enter the brain in um, localized area with ultrasound? So the pathology of amyloid beta, really, it's... Um, accumulated into the form of plaques, and it's the soluble, soluble oligomers that are toxic. So the antibody, some antibody can target the oligomers, 
the fibrils, the monomers. So we've tried different forms of antibody. I'm going to show you only a general antibody today. And it also affects the vasculature. So we also have another program that actually studied the effect of ultrasound on vasculature related to Alzheimer's disease. So I'll be happy to answer any question on that. But for time constraint, I won't have time to discuss it today. So our first study was using BAM10, which is the equivalent, the mouse equivalent of the bapinuzumab in human. And what we show here is like one dose of BAM10, which is a low dose of 40 microgram injected into the tail vein. If you look, we, this time we sonicated only the right side of the brain, and you can see where the antibody enter the brain on the right side, but not on the left side, which was not exposed to ultrasound. So again, the delivery is just on the ultrasound side. And that's true, we showed it by Western blot and immunoprecipitation. You can see on the right side of the brain where the antibody enters. The antibody stays in the brain for about 10 to 12 days. So up to four days, if you look on that side, we double label um, this, the section with BAM10, and in red is just the amyloid beta plaque. And we actually could find the antibody on every single plaque we looked at. So we were quite surprised to see how uh, a low dose of antibody can enter the brain efficiently and bind to the plaque. And it produced a reduction of amyloid beta within four days of about 23%. And that's a dose that in mouse, and I understand the challenges of mouse behavior, but in mouse, that level of, oops, sorry, of decrease is able to rescue cognitive function. And the next antibody we wanted to look at is just immunoglobulin, intravenous IVIG in human. Have been shown. So those are collected from tens of thousands of patients, donors, and they have affinity against multiple targets. They are good in the periphery. They are used for multiple disease. And we thought, what, what would happen if they entered the brain? And what can we do with ultrasound? So in this case, if we target the hippocampus, I will show you just the hippocampal data. But those are the two spots here that you see with ultrasound. And the dose of IVIG are much higher. Those are given at high dose in patient. And you can see four hours after ultrasound, we increase the level of IVIG by about sevenfold uh, into the brain. And then the antibody get clears from the brain um, within like 24 hours. So not only we increase the delivery of IVIG by sevenfold, and I'm not going to show you all of that data, but the, the plaque reduction was massive. We had the plaque reduction of about 87%. Uh, and then also we promoted neurogenesis by about 2.5-fold, which is the level of what you would get if you exercise. So we should all start jumping up and down and exercise. <laughs> but it was a really good effect on adult neurogenesis. So briefly, I will discuss the um, adeno-associated viral vector delivery. So it was uh, also discussed this morning. There's a lot of gene therapy clinical trial going on. One was mentioned with SMA, smooth muscle atrophy, and the success that it has, but also the cost that it has, and how, what are we going to do about it. So our goal was like, OK, we know the AEV9, for example, does cross the blood-brain barrier, but that's super high dose, and it has other peripheral effects as well. So could we reduce that dose significantly and use focus ultrasound to target it to brain areas or spinal cord as well? So we've done some spinal cord work as well. See where it goes. So the idea here is the um, AEV will be injected in the tail vein intravenously. And you can see, so we did different dose. So if you look at the lower dose, this is a dose that is, would be the equivalent of what is used in the clinic right now. And the focus ultrasound side is on the right. The non-focus ultrasound side is on the left. At that high dose, it enters both sides of the brain. And you can see on the ultrasound side how much is entering. In my humble opinion, this is too much. 
too much of a good thing is usually not good. Um, so if you look at the middle dose here, there is a good entry of the AEV on the ultrasound side, but nothing on the non-ultrasound side. I think that would be like the proper dose to use. We targeted other brain regions as well, so this was the hippocampus, here is the striatum involved in motor control and would be relevant to Parkinson's disease, for example, and got good entry of the virus there. So the idea would be that a one-time delivery of therapeutic, which for the ultrasound you may think maybe that's the way to go, like we do a one-time delivery with ultrasound and then the biologic that would be expressed by the viral vector could have long-term beneficial effect. We also checked to make sure that we were not changing the property of the viral vector with our AEV, so we labeled the cells. So in green, you have um, the, just GFP, and in red, we have the astrocyte. In blue, we have the neurons. And basically, what we found, like in other uh, mod mode of delivery, either intratecal or just IV, we are not changing the property of the tropism of the viral vector, and in the hippocampus, it is known that most of the cells that would be transduced are neurons and expressing the transgene compared to astrocyte, and it's reverse in the brain region. One thing you have to think about also when you study the brain, you have to see the brain as a multi-organ, um, it's a, many organs in one, like different brain region will take the drug differently and interact differently, so we have another level of complexity there, just for the fun of it. Um, so then uh, I want to give you an example that it worked really well for gene delivery for a Parkinson model. So we use uh, alpha-synuclein, a gene silencing vector. And this time we targeted several regions, including the substantia nigra, which is important in Parkinson's disease, and the dorsal motor nucleus. And I don't know if you can see well here, but this would be without, uh, this is a scramble shRNA, and this would be shRNA against alpha-synuclein. And we found in all of the brain regions that we study, including the substantia nigra, that we're able to reduce the level of alpha-synuclein that is present. So um, the idea, again, is that that would be long-term efficacy to keep pathology at bay in diseases that are progressive. So I'll really go quickly over that. This is all published. So I will just want to tell you that in all of these groups that we had our drugs, we actually had a control with ultrasound only, no drugs. Ultrasound, blood-brain barrier opening, what does it do? So we found that ultrasound by itself, so really that's a discovery group instead of the control group, can reduce amyloid beta transiently for about two weeks. It also reduced tau pathology. That was found by Jurgen Goetz group. And it increased glial plasticity, which are able to engulf amyloid beta. So that we shown we in 2013. It also promotes hippocampal neurogenesis by itself, uh, increased dendritic plasticity and cognition. So this is about 10 years of work right there. Uh, but you're welcome to look at it and ask me any question about it. So with that, the effect of ultrasound by itself and the potential that it will be increased with the delivery of a therapeutic, then this went to clinical trial for safety only. So the first clinical trial that was done at Sunnybrook in Alzheimer's patient was, um, so the device looks like this for a human. It looks like those big like hair dryer that put on your head. Uh, and the patient is shaved and then there's a skirt that is put on the skull with a frame, goes into the MR and the ultrasound device is happening in the MRI. And 
unfortunately, you cannot read that slide, but it's all on the clinical.gov uh, website. So there, we have completed now at Sunnybrook one clinical trial, which was done, that's the one I'm going to show you, to a very silent part of the brain for a safety procedure. And the next phase 2A trial is ongoing, targeting the hippocampus, and a group in New York as well has done it in the hippocampus. A group in France is using a different device called the SonoCloud. Happy to talk to you about that as well. So this is uh, the blood-brain barrier opening that was the first clinical trial. And what was done here, so if you look here, this is the brain of the patient before sonication, and this is the part of the brain that was sonicated. Again, in a silent part of the brain, really, we were going for safety here to make sure it was never been done before in human to open the blood-brain barrier in an Alzheimer patient. By the way, this is done in cancer patient, and you can imagine for glioblastoma and drug delivery to uh, a site of tumor how powerful this can be. And 24 hours later, the blood-brain barrier, the same patient, was closed. So this patient was followed. They, were, they had also a subsequent treatment. And even after the second treatment, the blood-brain barrier reclosed as soon as um, after the first treatment. One thing I've learned through these studies is that I think we have to change the textbooks. The textbook are saying, oh, the blood-brain barrier, don't touch it, and it's not plastic, and it doesn't repair itself. Well, guess what? I think it's a little bit different, and it's really fascinating from the neurobiology perspective to study how the blood-brain barrier responds to the ultrasound. Uh, this patient was uh, scanned for PET imaging, and we cannot make any claims on that it reduced the amyloid beta uh, with PET because there was really a small number of patients. So this was before the ultrasound treatment. Uh, that was about one or two weeks after the treatment, depending on the patient. And this was the area for each patient that was sonicated where you can see the enhancement. So in summary, uh, we can you know, say that MRI-guided MRI focused ultrasound and use BBB permeability, it can be done in a controlled, reversible, and targeted manner. And this is true in animal models and in the human. It can lead to um, intravenous injected small molecule antibody and gene vector to enter the brain. Basically, whatever we want to deliver into the brain now, we've been successful at it. So that's no question there. Uh, it engages functional outcome with the therapeutics that are delivered. So the amount of therapeutics delivered can reach efficacy and mo modulates neuronal and glial plasticity and everything at the neurovascular unit. So that's something that always needs to be studied carefully and that it can really transform the way that therapeutics are used like to let them get into the brain. And again, the way to think about it is a therapeutic that would be already good injected peripherally and better when it gets into the brain. So thanks to my team, all my grad students, my postdocs, and also all the collaborators. And we don't have the ocean in Toronto, but we have a beautiful lake. So paddling on the lake is great at sunrise. <laughs> and I'll take any question. Thank you so much, Isabel. While uh, microphones, we've got time for just a couple of questions. While microphones are being circulated to people who have questions. OK, we've got that. Can I ask one just quick about safety, about any inflammation with this process? Yes, sure. Speak to that. So we have a full study coming up soon. If you look short term and you have to really be careful of the parameters that you're using, there are some studies that use different type of microbubbles, higher dose of microbubbles. It creates a lot of inflammation, mainly short term. For us as well, at the parameters that we use, within 24 hours, we have um, a slightly more pro-inflammatory uh, milieu. Mm -hmm. And we've done all the cytokine profiling. But if you look two weeks later, 
we are in a more pro-regenerative environment. So I think it's like any other like injury that you mm -hmm. have, often you trigger that regenerative aspect. So I think it would be to strike that right balance, and it's okay. challenging. Interesting. But so far, so good on long term. Excellent. Yeah. Wonderful. David. Thank you for a nice talk. My question is uh, about the increasing evidence for the nonspecific injury potential of immunoglobulin in the brain because it's not a natural substance in the brain. And so when there's traumatic injury, when there's surgical injury, the invasion of immunoglobulin from the plasma into the brain creates a toxicity response. You could argue that it's an ADCC, an antibody-dependent toxicity, or you could argue that it's a nonspecific effect. So how do you separate your specific therapeutic claims from the idea that just IgG in the brain causes mm -hmm. an inflammation and this causes this regenerative potential to happen and it's just a nonspecific effect of anything that bears an FC fragment? Right, so really good question. So we started to look into this, but I, I need another team of people. Uh, so we, with the ultrasound alone, then we have the natural IgG and IgM that are going in, and, and they have potential effect, and we see them actually going around the, even the amyloid pathology, and they could have an effect there into helping into the clearance. Uh, but we haven't started to dissect that, so I would love to discuss more to f figure out how we could do that. And then how do you, because the brain is the most perfused organ in, yeah. in the body, how do you separate with spatial resolution that's on the micron scale the idea that, in fact, penetration into the brain is through the blood-brain barrier rather than just having the agent sequestered inside the vasculature but right. not inside the blood-brain barrier? This is always confusing to me as an academic editor because the evidence is so sketchy, most techniques, about yeah. how you prove that something actually did penetrate the blood-brain barrier in a whole-brain experiment like this. Right. For, for these experiments, what we've seen, and, and we look, for example, one example that I can give, it's, it's also for T-cell infiltration, which we're looking into, which is another area of interest. But whenever we look at our brain macroscopically in this manner, we cannot say where the agent is. We really have to look at the macroscopy level, and then we perfuse the brain really carefully with a lot of saline to make sure that we get rid of what's in the blood. And then we look carefully at the perivascular space, along with the brain parenchyma, because you're right, sometimes it's stuck in the perivascular space, or you really have to tell where it is. So it's not an easy task, but we are carefully looking through this. Okay, all right. Uh, just one more quick question from anybody, because I have one, if there's not. Um, one of the things is availability of the, of the um, instruments, the, the equipment, yes. and the cost. Right. You've already shown it's less invasive. Can you comment on how well this could serve patients in relative cost? Yeah, for now, in terms of relative cost, you can imagine with the MRI, that's your additional cost. You would reduce on the dose of therapeutic, but you have the MRI. Long term, if we uh, think more innovation and where this is going, so what uh, Clairvo and his team, Clairvo, Dr. Hinnan and his team and other researchers are doing is actually you would take a mold, like a, a 3D molded for each patient, you will have the MRI once, and then the focus ultrasound transducer are within that helmet. And then you, you, know, you can have reduce the cost of the MRI to go forward and not have the patient go into the MRI each time. And the SonoCloud device in France, it's different. The implant is in the brain, so you have mm. one 
surgical procedure, but that's more invasive, but then the um, ultrasound transducers stay put, and then you can activate it when you want. So there are like, different strategy for reducing mm -hmm. costs on that side. Yeah, it seemed like overall, comparing different types of therapies, this was actually a lot less costly, another benefit of this type yeah, of therapy. Yeah, I actually don't know the cost, I should ask. Yeah, well, <laughs> overall, okay, yeah, all right, you. okay, thank you. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.